the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you've tuned in to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind, I'll do the best that I can. You can call us by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use your free KSLR mobile app. Just hit one button, the call now banner. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, our main number is 340-9585. Hey, you can all pray for me. I need prayer. Uh, tonight we're studying um, arguably one of the most holy pieces of ground in all of Scripture. Isaiah 51 through the first five verses of Isaiah 53. Now, the reason I need prayer is pray that I don't talk too much because I want to really get to Isaiah 53, the first five verses uh, tonight. Um, it's, it's just magnificent. If I don't, if I talk, and sometimes I talk too much. I'm sure that shocks you, but I talk too much. And uh, I, I really need to get there tonight. So, a uh, great Bible study tonight. Also, quick reminder that we uh, our men's retreat begins tomorrow. It's not too late uh, to sign up online at calvarysa.com, or you can come and visit us at church tonight. We've always got room on Wednesday nights. Um, and sign up while you're here. Uh, we'd love to have you. Well, let's get to some questions. We've got our first phone call waiting. Uh, line one, we've got Anonymous, who's becoming a regular early caller in the program. Thanks for calling early. You're on the air. Okay, Pastor. Um, like I said in the past, I'm a Christian. I'm a very good Christian. But, you know, it's not easy, you know, being a good Christian, trying to live a good Christian life because of the devil. You know that. Mm-hmm. And the devil really, he really... He really punches on me. You know, he hurts me physically. And I know it's because he's trying to destroy me, but my question is to you, sir, is um, how do I how do I best roll with the devil's punches? I listen to your uh, response on the radio, sir. Okay, thank you. Can I say before, before uh, I answer your question, um, I admire greatly um, the desire you have in your heart to do the right thing and to be the person that Jesus wants you to be. Um, but two things that I want to share before I answer the question directly. One is, you can't be a good Christian. I can't be a good Christian. It's impossible. That's why Christ in us, the hope of glory, does the work. And it's very important that we get that. You know, so often we try so hard to do the right thing or to be the right person. 
And yet when we try in our own strength, we're fighting a supernatural enemy that's bigger and stronger and tougher and smarter than we are. And he's going to wait for that opening and then he's going to pound and he's going to pound some more. So let Jesus do the fighting. You know, Hebrews says that Jesus is our elder brother. I had a big brother, uh, Anonymous, who he's three years older than I am. And when he was 11 years old, he was the same size he is right now. He was six foot tall, a little on the chunky side, but he was a monster, a giant to other kids. And when other kids wanted to pick on me because I was a little mouthy, they wanted to pick, I just tell them, look, if you're going to fight me, you got to go through my big brother. Nobody wanted to mess with him. Well, Jesus is infinitely more powerful. And so let Jesus handle the blows from the enemy. That's really, really important. The second thing that I want to share with you is make sure, please, please, please make sure that you're in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And I don't mean a church where people shout at you or, or get you excited or give you goosebumps, but I mean a church that opens the Bible and teaches you chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because the instruction that you're asking for comes from there. So how do we deal with the blows from the enemy? It's given to us in Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the full armor of God. I can summarize it for you by saying just be with Jesus. And when you're feeling the attack of the enemy, you start talking to the Lord. And here's what I say when the enemy's lying to me. Lord, I don't want to talk to him. I want to talk to you. You handle him and I'll listen for you. And then I can talk with him, I can cry with him, I can laugh with him, but he's always there. So Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, but remember that the simpler way is to understand that that's just be with Jesus. And the enemy, we have to remember, the enemy cannot harm you. All he can do is lie, That's his power is the power of deception. Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? 1 John 4 says that he who is in us, that's the Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world. And I think a lot of your battles are going to begin and end with remembering those things by faith when you're in the middle of the test or the trial. The fact that you are tempted to do things you shouldn't do doesn't make you unique. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out. So spend more time with Jesus than you do the things that are tempting you. When the enemy wants to engage you in conversation, just refuse to participate. And say, Lord, you take care of him. I want to talk to you. That will change everything for you. But thanks for calling. Keep calling. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to a question from our email inbox. This one is from Mick. He says, when an unbeliever has died in the past, and when an unbeliever dies today, they're sent to a place of torment until after the millennial reign when they'll be cast into the lake of fire with Satan for all eternity. And then he asked the question, is that correct? Yes, it is. Um, The place of torment, uh, you can read about it in Luke chapter 16. And uh, that's where they will be until after the millennial reign when they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then he continues, today what exactly does a believer experience immediately after his soul is escorted to heaven? Some believe that at the moment of death, people are instantly judged and believers enter the final heaven or the new heaven, the place Jesus has prepared for us. While others claim that when a believer dies, their spirits are sent to a temporary heaven, uh, though not Abraham's bosom, to await the final resurrection, the final judgment. And when does the Bama seed occur in all of this? Lots of questions, Mick. Uh, You're right about when a believer dies. Um, when we die as believers, 
we instantly, and I mean in a nanosecond, we instantly go into the presence of God. See, that's what heaven is. I think we got heaven confused with a place out there. Heaven is where Jesus is. So we go immediately to be in his presence. And that is the final heaven. We'll be with the Lord forever. And that begins the moment we leave these bodies. Now, those who claim that a believer dies, their spirits are sent to a temporary heaven. Um, They don't really get it. To be absent from the body, Paul writes to the Corinthians, is to be present with the Lord. Paul wrote that it's better by far to die but in the body there's service for the Lord and he said for me to die is gain but we also understand that serving here is necessary so there's no temporary anything in heaven so that's really really important the Bema seat uh, is a reward seat the Bema seat is the seat of judgment Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about our works being judged and that the, the basis is and it's, it says whether they're good or bad in the NIV but it's really whether they're good or good for nothing and the good works are those that honor the Lord those that were born out of obedience and those that were born out of thanksgiving and, and, and love the good for nothing works even though the work itself on earth might have looked good the good-for-nothing works indicate our motives were wrong or we served while grumbling and there's no reward for those kind of things giving is an example if you give and you say well I have to give to the Lord or he's going to be upset with me there's no point in giving if you're not pleased to give don't give because there's no reward the same thing is true with serving the same thing is true really of anything that God asks us to do don't do it because you're going to get in trouble with Jesus if you don't. Do it because you love him. And those are the works that will get a lot of rewards. So I hope that answers your question. Mick, I appreciate you sending it to me. Here is our next question. This one comes from our mobile app, this time from Nacho. He says, is the tree of life a real tree or a metaphor for eternal life. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 says, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God uh, not sure I read those two verses from Genesis 3.22 and Revelation 2.7 because it, it, it appears as though the tree is, is a, a real tree we know in the garden when Adam and Eve were, were escorted out of the garden we remember that there was a, a, an angel with a flaming sword, a cherubim one of the really really high orders of God's angels and they were there to Uh, make sure that Adam could not eat from the tree of life. And the reason, of course, to to live forever in sin would have been the worst conceivable outcome. And I think sometimes we think, oh, if only I could live forever. But to live forever in this sin is not what we were created for. And so it appears to me it is a real tree. There are those who would disagree and say, no, it's just a metaphor. Uh, but that he brings it up in Genesis at the beginning and then in Revelation at the end would seem to indicate that in our glorified, resurrected physical body, and we know that we're going to be eating when we get to heaven, that that tree is the source of eternal life. Can't wait to get the questions answered with more clarity, but, but for now that's all we've got. And it seems like the context in Genesis, the beginning, and Revelation, the end, seems to imply very clearly that they're literal trees, a literal tree, rather. The only other thing is Jesus. Some, some will say, well, Jesus is the tree of life, we, and we've already eaten from that tree. And while that's possible, I don't think that's, that's too likely. 
appreciate the question, though. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. This one comes from Scott from our email inbox. Uh, Understanding that Joseph was an early representation of Jesus and understanding the purpose for him being in Egypt, what was the purpose of the back-and-forth interaction between Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 42 through 45? Why not reveal himself the first time they met? Um, Scott, a couple of things. One, when you say an early representation, um, I prefer the, the term type, a type or even a picture of Jesus. And, and clearly, there's a lot about Joseph's life that typifies the one to come, prophetically and, and in other ways. Joseph, in my, my own opinion, was probably um, one of the two or three holiest men in all of Scripture. He lived a life uh, in the middle of Egypt, a type of the world in the Old Testament. And he lived it to please God, and he endured such trials. And still, he never is found grumbling against God. He's never found wrestling with his conscience. He just seems to be um, a godly guy. At the same time, we have to remember that while he was a type of Christ in many, many ways, um, he was also a human. And there were two things going on when he was going back and forth with his brothers uh, after after you know, seeing them for the first time. You can only imagine how emotional that was. And Joseph pretending not to speak Hebrew or Palestinian at the time. Um, he hid himself, his identity from them. And I think what he was doing was testing them. Testing them to see where their hearts were, to testing them to see if they were repentant. And he needed until the... He, he got to that point where he was convinced and that's when he revealed himself to him. And I think there's a good picture in that as well. You know, one of the things I'm going to talk about at our men's retreat coming up this weekend is is um, the Lord only reveals himself to us when we're real. We've got to be real. And in this case, Joseph had the power of life and death, a blessing and cursing, the second most powerful man in the world at the time. When the brothers showed him that they knew they were guilty, they were responsible for what happened to, to their brother, um, Joseph was merciful. Genesis chapter 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I, I think that's why. Uh, I think you've got to also factor in the emotion part. He, he was so overwhelmed. There are times he just burst out of their presence and cried. We can't even begin to imagine what it was like to see his brothers and then find out if his father's alive, find out there's another son, Benjamin. So, Scott, I I think those are the reasons that I think there's uh, a whole bunch of them. Here is a question that comes from our mobile app. This one is from Kirby. Um, how should we pray looking up or with bowed heads? And her reference is Luke chapter 18, verse 13, um, from my study this past weekend, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. One of the things, Kirby, that I said in our Bible study Sunday, uh, this past week is, is that, that by beating his breast, what he's really saying is, Lord, I'm the problem. My heart is the problem. And he just cried out for mercy. Now, how we should pray, looking up with bowed heads, the answer is yes. (laughs) I just don't think the posture is important, Kirby. I don't think um, whether we pray with our eyes closed or pray looking up, um, I, I don't think it matters at all. When we pray from a heart that's pure before God, a heart that's repented of sin, well, that's when our prayers are going to be heard. And when our prayers are heard, this is the confidence we have that if He hears our prayers, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Those are prayers in the will of God, and those are the prayers that are getting, going to get answered. But here's the thing, just pray. 
one of the things that I talked about this past Sunday is that we too often make prayer something that's so unnatural. Um, you know, even the way we pray. Um, we, we change our language, the words we use, our vocabulary. We change the tone, the, the, the um, pace of our speech. So often we think we have to pray in King James English to be heard. But prayer is nothing more than having a conversation with our friend, with our Savior, with our Lord, with the King of Kings. It's just having conversation. So, forgetting the posture for a moment, I'm too old to get on my knees. Forgetting the posture for a moment, just talk to Jesus. Just talk to Jesus. And see how much it'll change your prayer life. And of course, the payoff for changing our prayer life is getting our prayers answered. And as I told the church this past Sunday, when our prayers start getting answered, believe me, we turn into prayer warriors. And the more you pray, no matter how awkward or uncomfortable it might seem at first, and it's awkward because we don't know him very well, especially when we first get saved. So we listen to the way other people pray and we think, well, that's how I have to pray. Just talk to him. Be you. And when you can be you, watch what the Lord does as he continues to reveal himself to you. Just pray and don't stop. Good question. Thank you very, very much. We've got five minutes left in this half of the program. 340-9585. Here is a question uh, from Andrea from our email account. Um, Pastor Ron, how can I answer the statement that Paul is a false apostle because he contradicts Jesus' teaching? Um, Andrea, I wouldn't bother answering the statement. I would just say, okay, show me where. That's all. That's the only thing I would do because, of course, Paul doesn't contradict Jesus. And I think one of the things that we really have to understand about the rest of the books that that the words aren't written in red letters is that they're every bit as authoritative as what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus didn't write, physically write the words in the Gospel accounts. Those were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they repeated what Jesus had taught. There is nothing, not one single thing that Jesus taught that Paul or any of the other writers of our New Testament wouldn't be completely in agreement with. So there's no contradiction, there's no problem. Usually when these questions are asked, Andrea, it's, it's because Paul says we can't do stuff. You know, the current debate, sadly, even inside the church about homosexuality and if it's okay Well, Jesus didn't say anything about it. Well, he did through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit pushing the pins of men. And most people don't really understand not only how we got our Bible, but what the authority of the Bible is. And the person that you're talking to, Andrea, I would would caution them uh, against just repeating what other people say. And the reason I would say this is because you've just made an assumption that there's a contradiction between the writings of Paul and the writings about Jesus. And there isn't. There isn't a single one. And all you have to do is leave them with that. Then it's up to them. So the person that would say Paul is a false apostle has no idea about our Bible, how we got it, what it says, or what it means. So don't let it bother you too much. Instead, um, just challenge him. Show me the contradiction, and we'll deal with it. But because there is no contradiction, they'll never be able to do that. So I hope that answers your question, Andre. You know, for all of us, and we're inside a couple of minutes now, so uh, for this half of the program, um, 
we are constantly bombarded with the Bible being full of contradictions. And it's not. Even Christian websites, I've, I've, I've had people direct me to, and it just says, you know, um, how to explain away the contradictions of the Bible. And they say, well, if you don't admit their contradictions, then uh, you're, you're just being naive. No, there are none. Was it one angel or two in the tomb that Jesus rose from the dead in? Well, the answer is two, but one of the gospel writers, as an example, only focused on one, the one who spoke. The other had sort of a bigger picture of what was going on. And imagine there were two men in shining raiment. So the idea is there's always an explanation for what might at first glance appear to be a contradiction, but there are no contradictions in our scriptures. If there were then we would have no authority at all, no source of authority. So really, really important, Andrea. Thank you for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions, or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word of Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the show 340-9585 let's go right to the phones converse texas phyllis on line one phyllis thanks for calling you're on the air oh hello pastor ron i hope you and paula are well we are, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I was reading Luke, uh, looks like 22 and 36. I kind of stumbled over that uh, verse, and I was just wondering if you could uh, please clear that up. And also, I was, uh, I wanted to ask about the, uh, the uh, Jews. The, it keeps popping up on all these internet, uh, not internet, uh, um, YouTube channels that uh, these are they're not the real Jews. They like in Posner. And I just want to get your comment on uh, on that also, if you could please explain that, okay? Okay, Phyllis, before you hang up, Phyllis, what is the, what was the segment, explain what about the Jews? Uh, they were uh, mentioning that these are not real Jews because they keep, well, they call themselves the um, Israelis. And the real Jews was called Israelites. So um, I'm just trying to get this cleared up because, like I say, it's been on a lot of YouTube channels saying these are imposters. They're not the real Jews that uh, uh, came from Israel. And um, if you could clear that up, I just... You know, we'll love some answers there. Thank, thank you, Phyllis. I can do that. I, I, at least I hope I can. Um, you, you know, um, I love you, and, and you won't take this personal, but we need to stop listening to these guys on YouTube who uh, can put up a channel, and, and they, they sound like they know so much. They really don't. And especially uh, these who are speculating or or focusing on prophecy about Jews. You know, um, the, the, the situation with God's chosen people, the Jews, has never changed. Some believed a few, most did not. And that's the, now, the, the, there's a, the, the two names, Israel means governed by God. Um, um, when God uses the name Jacob to address them, Jacob, you know, was his name as a, as a, a deceiver, uh, a rebel against the, the will and the plan of God. Um, so, so the, the, if you are Jewish by birth, ethnicity, then you're a Jew. Um, the fact that Jews were regathered from all over the world, beginning in 1948, to come to Israel, and that that migration is still occurring, um, doesn't make them any less Jewish. But remember that. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11 that not all Israel is Israel. 
the fact that you're born a Jew doesn't uh, give you any right to, to claim um, lay claim to heaven. Um, you need to be governed by God. We would say as as Gentiles, we need to be born again. And uh, so, so just really be careful with the people on YouTube and stuff. I know we've got access to so much information, but a lot of it is really, really bad information. Regarding Luke chapter 22, this is one of my favorite passages. Um, Phyllis, we're not there yet. We're in Luke chapter 18, I think, now. Um, but but this is a time when Peter was going to, in his boasting, he said, Lord, the others may desert you, but I never will. And Jesus, of course, answered him by saying, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Uh, deny that you even know me. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, and I'll read the verse before the one Phyllis asked about. Uh, Jesus asked them, when I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and go buy one. Now, here's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Uh, He's already told them that their life after him is going to be difficult. They're going to be in danger. They're going to be brought up before kings and magistrates. And, and, And Jesus basically said, look, when I was here, we walked this earth together for three and a half years. When I was here, I protected you. You lacked nothing. Um, but but now I'm going. So if you have a purse, take it. You know, make money, provide for yourself, be able to eat. Uh, a bag, you've got to bring your belongings with you. And the reference to sword is trouble people. But Jesus is basically just saying, uh, your life is going to be in danger, so defend yourself. I have a gun advocate say, well, see, doesn't that mean that we should be able to keep guns? This has nothing to do with, with, with guns. But what Jesus is simply saying, Phyllis, is that life is going to be much different when I'm gone. They're going to try to kill you. You're going to be the object of murder plots. And we know that was the case with all of the disciples who became apostles. So basically he's saying to them, get ready now to fight. When I was here, you were okay. But now that I'm leaving, it's going to be hard. And, of course, James, of all of the apostles, he was the first of the apostles uh, who was martyred for his faith. So, Phyllis, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Trevor. Perfect timing, Trevor. So does Isaiah 53, 5 promise physical healing? By his stripes, we are healed. Trevor, if I don't talk too much, I'm going to get to that verse tonight. And regardless of whether I get there, I'm going to go back again next Wednesday uh, into Isaiah 53 again. But the answer is no. Um, Isaiah 53, 5 has nothing whatsoever to do with physical healing. Um, the context of the passage, Peter later says in Second Peter chapter 2 that, that, that this is healing of our fatal disease of sin. But the atonement doesn't provide for nor explicitly promise physical healing. That is a verse that's been so misused and abused and taken out of context by health and wealth teachers, prosperity teachers, if only you believe the atonement says we'll be healed, uh, have enough faith to believe it, but that's just nonsense. So Isaiah 53, 5 has nothing to do at all with physical healing, and it is so dangerous and causes a lot of damage and pain, Trevor, um, from people who are in those churches that claim that it does. Uh, I had somebody say to me recently that, well, well, I know it doesn't promise healing, but it provides for healing. That has nothing to do with the context of Isaiah chapter 53. Thank you for the question, Trevor. Appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to uh, Jonestown, Texas, and talk with Dale online, too. Dale, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I was just calling in response to Andrea's question. You know, as a less mature Christian, when I heard about Paul being a false apostle, I have to confess it kind of took took me as prey, you know, the whole war between law and grace. And mm-hmm. um, I I turned to the Word, and I could point her to Second Peter 3, where uh, Peter endorses Paul, 
uh, in talking mm-hmm. about how others were twisting his doctrines and uh, not only endorsed him as their beloved brother, but also the wisdom that was given to him. So, I mean, it's pretty, pretty powerful testimony that he was a, indeed a true apostle. Yep, I agree completely. Not only that, Dale, but, you know, um, uh, Peter seemed to have an understanding that Paul's letters contained Holy Scripture. And uh, he said his, his, his letters are heavy, they're weighty, um, but, but, but carry the authority of the other scriptures. And um, um, that is a ringing endorsement by the Holy Spirit and by the Apostle Peter. So I agree completely. Thank you for the observation. 340-9585, Jonestown, I'm told, is 15 miles east of Marble Falls. Dale, you need to come and meet us at our men's retreat this weekend. We're going to be at Camp Buckner, which is right there. I don't know what city it's in, Spring Branch or something. No, no. no that's not true. It's from Marble Falls. Uh, but it's right by Marble Falls, and uh, you, you will have a, a blast. And since you're close, drop in on us and say hello. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. You know the reason I answered the question, Dale, the way I did when when Andre asked, is because I think what we really have to do is get to the dishonesty of all the the contradiction pointer outers because there just aren't any. I've been studying this Bible for twenty eight plus years, and um, there are some difficult passages to be sure. Uh, there are some things that you have to read in context. Uh, James, uh, you know, the book of, of James uh, was one of the last two, along with Hebrews, to be accepted into the New Testament canon simply because it seemed to people, even back then, that James was contradicting Paul's teaching us on grace. But when we understand the context that James was writing, there's no contradiction at all. And when I I said to Andrea to, to, to ask him which one, um, I want to find out when somebody's asking me questions if they're honest questions. Do they really want to know, or are they just trying to, you know, throw out the gotcha questions? And and one of the ways I do that is I find out whether or not they've actually read it for themselves, or they're just repeating what other people say. I also have a feeling, uh, Dale, that uh, the question uh, that Andre asked was was motivated by someone. Uh, who was supporting uh, homosexual Christianity. Um, you know, Paul's uh, uh, false teachers, so Jesus didn't say anything about it type of thing. That's usually the context that I get the questions like that. Thanks for calling. I hope we see you. Come up and shake my hand, give me a hug. Eric says, How should I address transgender people if they want to use a name that doesn't match up with their biological gender? Um... Boy, Eric, you know, my answer is going to put you in a position where you're going to expose yourself to being blasted, but that's got to be okay. Um, Very simply, I would address people by the name they want to be called. Um, We give people nicknames, but at the same time, I would say to them that calling yourself... um, Patricia doesn't make you any less a man. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't make a big deal. I think it's rude to, 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 to call people something they don't want to be called. I think that's sort of pushing for a fight. So what I think, Eric, is, is that somebody said to me, um, I, would, I would call them um, whatever they wanted to be called. You know, we have some issues at Malta Medical and, and uh, some support where we've got legal documents. And uh, we make people show us their driver's license or ID before they get in. They even ask me for ID. I mean, it just it's, we, we've got to be very careful. And we call people by the name and their medical files are by the name on their driver's license. And we've got a lot of, of um, transgender people that have been coming lately for, for medical care. I just think it's an amazing thing. We've got a, a, a big homosexual base of clients, uh, patients, and all of a sudden transgenders, uh, transgender people are coming uh, out of the woodwork. Uh, it's, it's just sort of God saying, look, we're going to take care of you, we're going to love you, we're going to pray for you, and we're going to tell you about Jesus. 
but we got to call you by the name on your driver's license. And they get upset sometimes because, well, you said I had my driver's license changed. Well, when you do, then we'll change your medical file name. But until then, um, we've got to we've got to do it in this way. And you know what? We're we're free. Um, so we we don't uh, people get irritated with this, of course, but they don't really argue too much with this because there's nowhere else they can go. And we recognize that that's a position that God has given us, and we want to use that to win them. We don't want to use that to push them out the door. Um, you know, we're not we're not there to condemn them. We're there to touch their bodies and heal them, and then wait for the Lord to open their heart by the Holy Spirit, so that we can heal them from the inside out. So, Eric, I, I won't make you popular, but I think that's that's what I would do. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Tina asks, "What exactly happens to you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Tina?" It's different for different people. Um, the, the the general answer is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we have power. We we need the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything and everything for the Lord. You know, when I do this radio show, I hope it's the Holy Spirit speaking to me. When I'm teaching tonight, I pray that the Holy Spirit is coming upon me and, and I'm teaching the Word. Um, but but to, to be a, a good husband, to be a good father, to be a good friend to people, I still need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon me. So um, I, I think the most important thing is that obedience happens because if we're not obedient, then we quench the Holy Spirit and He leaves. But when you talk about what exactly happens, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit compels you or forces you, is a better term, uh, forces you to obey. And the Holy Spirit doesn't force you to, 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 to cleanse your heart. Um, but, but what the Holy Spirit does is make you aware of the need. So you, you've got this need. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you've got this need, this gnawing in your heart, I've got to get right with God. And that's why we repent of our sins. We confess them, and, and and He forgives us and purifies us from all unrighteousness. There are times when it is a very powerful and emotional experience. Most of the time, it's ordinary. Um, when the gifts of the Spirit are flowing from you, uh, it's just a natural outflow of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Uh, but it's not this experience where we uh, we see in some of these crazy charismatic churches where you're out of control or you're laughing or you're barking or you're falling on the ground and you can't move. Uh, that's nonsense. That's disorder, and God is not an or- a God of disorder. Rather, he is a God of order. So that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But, Tina, it's different for everybody in terms of the emotion of the moment. Um some will, will cry, others will, will moan and groan. Um, most of the time, you just keep walking with Jesus because the reason he's filled you with this spirit is to get something done that he wants done, and we get the privilege of sharing in that. I said this in an earlier question, I think on Monday, or not Monday, but Tuesday, um, yesterday, when... when um, when the Spirit comes upon you, um, it's an opportunity to show the people you're around who Jesus is. It's an experience that we all ought to, to cherish every day. We ought to seek every day. Be ye filled. And, and when Paul writes that, the Greek is in the continuous present tense. It, it's be ye continually being filled continually. And when we understand that, then uh, we're in a place where um, imagine the smile of God. We're in that place where He can be used. Here's a question from Annette. She asks, can houses be demon-possessed and what should we do if they are? And that demons want houses, but it's not the kind of houses you're thinking of. They want to be housed in the human body. Remember when uh, legions, demons were cast out. They they didn't want to be disembodied, so they wanted to be cast into the, into the pigs. They need a living host. 
houses cannot be demon-possessed. I think we watch too much TV and too many scary movies and too many exorcism movies and things like that. Uh, demons cannot live in uh, or occupy, in a permanent sense, a house. I get asked a lot, Annette, from people, uh, hopefully not people that come to the church for any length of time, but people that are new, uh, they'll ask us to come over and anoint the house and and um, um, cast out any demons and that kind of thing. And so we we have to sit down and tell them, look, there's the, there's no demons in your house. Jesus lives there. If you surrender this house to Jesus, then that's the only power that you need. Um, but we get just a little bit too demon crazy um, because of the things that we see and because of some of the, the really bad teaching. So when I anoint a house, and I, I'm always happy to do it, but it's not to cast demons out, it's to anoint the house, making the, 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 the notice to anybody and everybody, including the, the spirit world, that this is the house that belongs to Jesus. We're anointing this house with the, with the oil of gladness. We're anointing this house with the power of God. But to think that there's demons in there and shout at them and bind them and cast them out, um, and that is simply not part of of uh, demonology. It's not. It's not. Not not what they do. So, your house cannot be demon possessed. If you're a Christian, nor can you. Uh, you can be demon harassed, uh, but uh, you don't really need to do anything except make sure that house is dedicated to Jesus. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Adam. He says, I have a question about the Hebrew Roots Movement. Is it good or bad? Uh, Adam, it's heretical, it's false, which means it's really bad. Um, the Hebrew Roots Movement is a group that's also called Black Israelism. Um, uh, it's a group of, of uh, really, really far out there cult types who, uh, who will insist that Jesus was black uh, and that the religion was stolen from the, the black man by the white man um, and that the real Jesus was black and his real followers are black. And, of course, that's nonsense because race is a non-issue with Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Race is a non-issue. Uh, don't worry about them uh, at all. William asks, uh, how should I view Christian accountability groups? Um, William, uh, I'm not a fan of Christian accountability groups. Um, I, I'm a believer in having good friends, people who tell you the truth about you. Um, but at the same time, a Christian accountability group, um, you, you know, I've always taken the position that if you won't be obedient to Jesus because of what he's done, what makes anybody think you're going to be obedient because you have an accountability partner? And, and William, I, I say this, having had a lot of people over the years ask me to be their accountability partner and trying to discourage them and finally somebody would say, but but can I, can I call you? And yeah, you can call me. But the problem is when they're messing up, they avoid me. And you lose friendship. So, um, you know, we live in a world that, that leans so heavily on groups, on psychology, on mentorship, all of those kinds of things. And it sounds really good. It sounds, and, and, and it usually comes out of a good heart. But the truth of the matter is that all we need is Jesus. Now, if you are part of a church, then you've got a whole bunch of people there that are your accountability group. You don't have to ask them to be it. That's what they do. That's what the, the body functions or how the body functions. And I promise you, if you're walking away from Jesus and you're involved in a local church as you should be, um, God is going to send somebody with a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, and, and they're going to confront you if you refuse to, to listen to the voice of God. But the idea that we would be accountable to a human being when we won't be accountable to Jesus, I think is foolishness. I think the whole idea of 12-step groups and 
keep drudging up the old hurt in the past. I think it's counterproductive. So, William, here's what I would ask you to do. Open your Bible every morning. Sit down and talk with Jesus. Keep short accounts. If you've sinned, repent and ask him to forgive you. It's a done deal. But do it all day. Do it continually throughout the day. If you find yourself falling into sin, say, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that again. Lord, please forgive me. It's done. Why is it that we look to humans instead of to Jesus? The answer is because we don't know Jesus nearly as well as we know those other humans. Jesus is unyielding as an accountability partner. When you sin, you're going to know it. But then you have to do something. And a human would maybe give you a little bit of space. Oh, I'm so sorry you're struggling with this, but keep struggling. Jesus said, just stop doing it. So that's how important it is, William. But I think it's, um, it's, it's silliness to think that we would not sin because we're accountable to another human while at the same time not accepting the fact that we're accountable to him, to the Lord Jesus. So I hope that answers your question. Hey, we're at the end of our program for today. Tonight, Isaiah chapter 51 through 53, verse 5. It is a masterpiece of holiness. Our men's retreat starts tomorrow. We'd love to see you. And the date day edition of the show. I know Paula was on Monday, but she's coming back tomorrow on a regular post uh, on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you tomorrow. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. God bless you. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.